0: Welcome to Tipping Point, a new podcast from Merger Market, where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most in the world of M&A. I'm your host, Tom Kane, broadcasting from the Windy City. In the last episode, we took a look at the impact of COVID-19 on overall M&A activity. In this week's episode, we're going to zero in on an area that has been really buoyant, prior to the market correction, and it's an area that merger markets readers were following really closely, and that's asset and wealth management. So I'm delighted to welcome onto the show today, Liz Nesvold, who heads up asset and wealth management investment banking at Raymond James, and Peter Nesvold, COO of financial services MA and at the firm. Liz, Peter, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here.
1: Great to be here.
2: Thanks very much.
0: Well, since the start of 2018, according to our data, Raymond James has advised on well over 60 deals, worth over $10 billion in total in the asset management space. And Liz and Peter are really a key part of that strategy since Raymond James acquired the boutique investment bank firm Silverlane, which they'd founded in 2007, just before the financial crisis uh, last year. At the time of the deal, Raymond James underlined what opportunities saw in financial services M&A generally, and particularly in the asset management and wealth management categories. And said so this is where Silverlane excels with unparalleled expertise. So it's great to have you on the show. And I think it's a really interesting time to talk about asset and wealth management. In the last few years, we've seen a really big uptick in deals in this space, according to our data. Between 2018 and 19, we saw an 18% jump in deal value and a 15% jump in deal count. What was driving that? According to our reporting, peaking valuations for US asset management companies were driving aging advisors to consider selling at the average age of independent RIAs in the US at 53 years old. So it's a really interesting time. Now obviously the market is corrected. So those kind of peaking valuations that we were discussing presumably uh, are falling with uh, the market correction eating away at a lot of firms' assets under management and, and evaluations. we to get your, your take, Liz and Peter. Um, despite the, the market correction, uh, you guys have recently closed three deals. So what's the secret to getting deals done? in this kind of market during such a market panic?
2: Thanks. Well, you know, it's critically important in any time, frankly, to, uh, to have strong communication, but that's particularly important uh, during a market panic. The facts and circumstances are changing so quickly um, that if the team is not on top of each detail, it could be very easy for a transaction to start to spiral out of control. Uh, in, in normal times, we have a Monday morning meeting where we go through every active engagement. Um, what we have been doing for the past month uh, from an operating standpoint is to actually have that all-hands meeting every morning. So we're starting our mornings earlier, and we are going deal by deal and, uh, for each transaction and really trying to identify uh, problems before they become real issues.
1: In terms of the structuring, and I think as Peter pointed out, um, deals in this environment are a little bit more fragile. Um, and that's why we're spending so much time making sure we are tight on deal process, tight on where uh, we are on status uh, and, and tight on the market feedback. Um, in this time, however, uh, it requires more structural creativity than ever before. Given the market pullback, invariably optimizing structure is what's going to get the deal over the goal line. Buyers will naturally feel like um, there should be a price reduction. Sellers in this market are probably doing more for their clients. And in many cases with our clientele, what we're seeing is they're starting to pick up even more new business. So while assets may have fallen, they're actually backfilling what the market is taking away with new client activity, uh, organic growth. So how can one argue that a firm is worth less today? Markets come and go, and when the market comes back, invariably those asset levels and the the EBITDA on which you're probably placing a multiple uh, will be boosted. Um, So there has to be some kind of sharing of value. There will be inherently a lot of operating gearing embedded in these businesses, Um, so we need to find a way to share some of the upside as the market returns. So I would say to the buyers out there, at least of our clientele, there is no for sale by owner sign out.
0: So let's say we talked about uh, one of the trends that was driving consolidation was owners thinking about succession planning. So let's say at the start of the year, you, you were planning to, to sell this year. Um, what are they thinking now? Are they going to hold on for another couple of years? Or do you think they, you know, still hoping to potentially exit, uh, once the, the market has calmed down a bit and, and there's a more consensus on valuation, for example.
1: It really depends on the reasons for transacting. Um, In many instances, as you pointed out in your opening, um, there has been a lot of transacting to facilitate continuity planning for founders. There may still be a need for founder transition backed by next generation who merely can't afford to transact, uh, can't afford the financing, can't afford to put up as much as would be required to get that founder to transact. Um, so that is still a reason um, that could prompt somebody to do a deal in this this uh, time. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is there are a lot of firms in the middle of a huge growth cycle. Um, many who've um, found ways to grow pretty aggressively organically, with a lot of uh, inbound lead generation, have turned to sub acquisition and transaction activity to further their expansion. Those are firms that are still looking for growth capital. Um, And that's where it comes into the art of the deal, which is these firms are on a growth trajectory. Perhaps it's slowed a little bit for the time being, but they have a wonderful opportunity to pick up smaller players who may capitulate in this market about trying to run their own business or really may have a continuity issue and no next generation to pick up the business um, in terms of that transition. So this is a a great time for positioning. I think it will be an incredibly opportunistic market. Truth is, if you were thinking of selling, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if you were thinking of doing that hundred percent sale, Um, optimizing pricing and you really aren't compelled for any reason, you're probably going to play through a little bit. You're going to watch the market. You're going to see how things settle out. And then you're going to pick your timing. But there invariably are more solutions that are available and things that we didn't have, if you take it back to the last crisis, like minority de-risking events that could be possible where there will still be um, some transaction activity.
0: (sighs) Interesting comparison there to the last financial crisis, uh, to, the, to the financial crisis in 08-09. Uh, uh, obviously, you started your your business just before that, in, in uh, August 2007, prior to the Great Recession. How would you compare this market environment we're in now compared to the Great Recession 2008 and previously to that, the dot-com bust? Uh, 9, 11 in, in 2001, you know, what's the, uh, what happened to deal activity during those periods in this space and and what kind of similarities or differences are you seeing?
2: You know, anytime you get, um, major market. Sell-offs, uh, there's less business confidence and M&A activity goes down. And so for sure, we did see a decline in deal volume in the 2001 era 0809, and we'll probably see some decline um, coming out of this crisis. Now, one important difference between the three downturns is that the buyer universe has changed dramatically. So back in 2001, um, you only had, let's say, a handful of different buyer types. Um, that broadened in 08 and 09, so we didn't see quite as a sharp a decline in, uh, in 08 and 09 as we had around uh, the dot-com bust. And private equity really discovered this space in 2008 and 2009. And I think really what was discovered was um, AUM and clients were far stickier than many people would have thought. Um, that with, combined with the fact that, as Liz mentioned earlier, you had some embedded gearing with the AUM. So as the markets came back, uh, fees increased, EBITDA increased, you had this nice operating leverage. Um, that, uh, that you ordinarily might not see in this in this in this space. Um, so I think what will probably happen is you will see a decline in the in the volume, but because the buyer universe has exploded so dramatically, um, we don't think it would be as big a, a fall off. Um, we would probably expect to see private equity um, become more active relative to strategics if this downturn really. Um, extends for, a, for an extended period of time because strategics will really have to focus on keeping their own house in order.
1: I would add to that that in 2001, and I'm, I'm an old lady in the steel business, but in 2001, it was uh, predominantly dominated by the strategics. Um, so Peter is right. The, the flavors of ice cream or the choices um, along the um, partner paradigm have really expanded. Um, 2008, 2009, we saw, um, you know, private equity backed or capital backed platforms really coming into their own. So a lot of the transaction activity had shifted to the industry itself in terms of consolidation. And now in this market uh, uh, dynamic, and I would say pre-pandemic crisis, um, we saw the expansion of the, the buyer set into investors that look like family offices, long life capital funds, um, pension funds, um, European uh, international entities coming into market to find their positioning, which again is very different from where we were in 2001. It was predominantly a a domestic play for the strategic. So there is a, a, a greater opportunity set and while many of those players will call themselves out um, for this time frame and sit on the sidelines, there was a, 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 a dearth of sellers relative to the number of buyers in the mix. I think there will be a pullback in terms of number of transactions that do occur, but the opportunity set is greater than ever before.
0: You mentioned private equity. Uh, they have been – quite aggressive in chasing wealth management businesses, attracted by cash flows and and fee-based income. So you mentioned quite a bit in your your previous answer. What do you expect private equity to be thinking now?
1: Um, I think the players who have been in this space regularly um, will continue to be in this space. And and here's um, some interesting anecdotal evidence. Um, We have a couple of big deals in the market, and with the first big um, major drop, we had a non-U.S. entity call up and say, hey, um, I see what's happening in the market. I want to let you know we have a very strong balance sheet, and we're ready to transact. And that was followed by the next big market drop, and then a number of the private equity firms that we're dealing with uh, called up and said, hey, we want to let you know we're open for business. Um, So people who are actively engaged and are looking for their platform opportunities are still gonna look. Um, It doesn't mean there isn't a a reset in some elements of the valuation because the EBITDA has changed. Um, And so maybe that's their, uh, if they were feeling like it was a frothy market by virtue of the run up, they're probably feeling better about deploying capital into this market Uh, because invariably they have funds and they have time horizons and they've got to deploy. This to me feels like a better time to put my stake in the ground on a platform opportunity than maybe 12 months ago.
2: Prior to our sale to Raymond James, I did all the, I handled the financial sponsors coverage group for for Silver Lane. And we used to track these numbers pretty religiously. There were over 200 private equity firms that had called on us in a two to three year type period. A lot of generalist firms um, that had discovered wealth but hadn't actually invested yet. And I think I, I, I support Liz's comment. Um, those, those funds that have experience in the, spa- in the space, they'll continue. Um, but I do think that some of the fringe players uh, who haven't done deals in the space previously, I think this type of market volatility will probably keep them on the sidelines.
0: Well, since you bring up Silver Lane and your experience there, let's segue a little bit into talking about your story there. So you started in 2007 just before the Great Recession. How did you weather that period and, and survive in those early years? And um, what advice might you have for businesses that are that are going through similar experiences today?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of stories there. So August two thousand and seven, when if you think back, actually was a pretty bad month, and that was really the uh, the quant meltdown, um, and so. Uh, Liz wanted to start the business at that time, I was actually just about to make partner at Bear Stearns. Um, I, I, I was promoted to partner 90 days before it went away. Um, but I went to a presentation in the days after she told me that she wanted to launch the business, and the presenter made a really tremendous comment. Uh, it was Jim Press, the only American on the board of uh, Toyota. He, at that time, he was CEO of, um, of Chrysler. And what, what Press said was, People learn good habits in bad times and bad habits in good times. And that, that statement really stuck with me um, because it made me think, you know what, if we can build a business during periods of volatility, um, we're going to be pressured and forced uh, to keep it variable cost, try to keep the overhead low, take on more project-based work. Um, we actually have this opportunity to build a sustainable business As opposed to um, starting a business in in, in a bull market, which yes, capital is more readily available, but it's much easier for you to overspend or to be frankly too aggressive and grow too quickly.
1: And I would say, um, just taking a step back, since um, uh, Peter tends to be the brake and I tend to be the gas, he made me put a business plan together on how we would get to profitability. And a lot of that hinged on our ability to drive process and leverage technology. So we were early uh, adopters, um, beta testers of a lot of things that today uh, everybody leans on, like Zoom was still venture capital backed when we started using it. Um, Early user of Salesforce, um, voice phones, whatever it was, if we could plug and play wherever we were, and drive process to um, accelerate the time frame to getting deals done, we'd be in a better position to um, drive profitability. Um, and his, uh, so I, I'm thankful that he made me do the business plan, and it played out pretty well. In terms of the type of, we were off to the races in the end of 2007 and 2008 uh, had a, we're having a record year, and then the music stopped. Um, and there was a moment in time where uh, it felt like a quiet month, and I said, okay, what are we going to do now? Um, We did probably more strategic advisory consulting work than I'd ever envisioned. Um, There are a lot of companies thinking of making dispositions at the time. Um, We probably talked more of them out of doing that work, and that paid paid it forward uh, because they came back to us later, and we ended up with sale mandates. Um, but we, we ran hard uh, to make sure we could deliver um, very good intellectual capital to clients to keep them on the right path to doing good deals as opposed to doing a deal out of panic.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask what kind of mandates were you, were you seeing back then?
1: Oh, boy. So we did uh, for a big insurance company, they were thinking of shuttering a business unit that had about 27 million in revenues, which for them was a rounding year. Um, And we came in and and we did a McKinsey-like consulting engagement and said, it's actually a marvelous business. Um, And there are about 10 things we can see that you could do to really impact value. Um, And they, at the time, had something like 35 COBOL programmers attached to that business unit, so shuttering would have been a uh, huge uh, write-off. They ended up playing through, taking our advice, and three years later, we ended up with a sale mandate uh, selling this particular unit to InvestNet. Um, So we did a lot of um, uh, strategic advisory engagements. And then there were a number of uh, firms that were trying to position themselves for growth Um, And thinking about combinations, so we did some work around um, advising people on uh, mergers and then a couple of uh, firms who really felt that they needed broader skill sets coming out of that market, Um, and so we had a couple of uh, sale mandates where more of it was around structuring and recovery of value and upside participation as opposed to maximizing the dollar at the downstroke.
0: So you sold the firm to Raymond James last year, and now, as we said in the introduction, pivotal to Raymond James' overall strategy in this area. How have you seen the market change since 2008, and where do you see the opportunities ahead, and and what will Raymond James focus on uh, in particular?
2: Well, I'd say that the number of deals has certainly increased very significantly besides the, the deals has also increased significantly the fact that private equity is a major player in the industry also really changes that dynamics um, you know private equity isn't in the business of doing small deals um, they're in the business doing big deals and in the business of doing a number of them um, and anytime money is coming into an industry from private equity eventually it's going to have to come out um, Raymond James has uh, one of the strongest um, financial sponsors group coverage in uh, in the industry and so when As we saw more and more P.E. firms owning asset and wealth management firms, um, our sense was there's a round trip that's coming. And uh, being a boutique, getting, getting the sale mandate from private equity can be very challenging. Uh, but when you're part of a, a bigger platform with multiple products that's showing them a, a large number of deals across many industries, it's far more likely that, uh, that you can get that mandate. There's also the potential for, for more IPOs. We've really only had one so far focused uh didn't necessarily trade well in the aftermarket. Um, it, it, it did subsequently find some footing. Uh, but we do think there's going to be um, a handful of IPO candidates coming up in the space as well from the sponsor-backed platforms.
0: So presumably that will be next year. It might be difficult to to go public this year, you would have thought.
1: Well, yeah, this year, probably a tighter tighter window. Um, to take something public, but this I would say this year and maybe into um, next is about positioning. This is where I come back to, you know, uh, I guess chance favors the trained mind. This is a wonderful opportunity to position your business for some subsequent event. Um, We have more sizable, interesting um, transactions that we're working on than I've ever had before in my whole career. And most of them are about positioning for the future. It's not about 100% sale, cash out, go to the beach. It really is about finding the right partner to help continue to institutionalize the thinking of the business, help it to the next level, Um, maybe taking in capital to fund transaction activity. We're looking at a really interesting combination um, that would make a global play. In the wealth management space, I don't know if we'll pull it off, but we're trying. Um, and this really is about positioning for opportunity in the future. So, again, while I'm going to knock on wood, I'm thankful every day for the wonderful clients who have put their trust in us. Um, this is an environment that um, the, the really brave and the really smart will capitalize uh, and take advantage of growth opportunities over the next five to ten years.
0: So you've covered a lot of ground. Final thoughts? What are your three top expectations for the year ahead?
1: I would say um, this really is a market about strategic positioning. I think we'll see impactful combinations uh, that we might not have seen in this market. I think um, the mid-sized firms will continue to grow. I made a prediction, maybe it was five, seven years ago that, um, you know, firms that hit $5 billion would hit the tweener mark and they would feel like they needed to be $10 billion. Now it's those same firms that are at $10 billion that feel like they need to get to $20, 30000000000 to cover the ground that they want to cover. Um, this is a market that is opportune, uh, an opportune time for those, those players to position themselves. Um, and that often takes capital. So I think we will see more transformational bets.
2: I think one thing you might also see, and, and this will be a bit of a, a social experiment, maybe across a lot of different industries, as a result of, of what the world's going through at the time of this um, podcast being recorded. I think a lot of people are becoming much more comfortable working remotely and transacting remotely, and in some cases, um, d- doing a deal with almost very little personal interaction. Um, that's enormously different than, than how deals had come together previously. And of course, that might be a change in investment banking. But let's say for wealth management, um, will the, ty- the way that we deliver financial advice to clients change as a result of this? Uh, change as a result of the fact that everybody now knows how to use Zoom um, and is is more comfortable, um, not, more comfortable not having that day-to-day direct uh, human interaction. And that could be a really big game changer for the wealth management industry. Um, There could be a lot of uh, productivity improvements, uh, a lot of operating leverage. And to me, that'll be really interesting to see play out.
1: If I could add, um, with respect to um, digital engagement, um, we can envision two of our transactions that our clients will actually only meet in person, the finalists, by the time we're through with this pandemic or at least it has subsided where we could actually be as close as six feet to one another again um but it, it is conceivable that that will have been uh, the course of these two processes um so that that will be one for the deal bankers hall of fame uh, for sure
0: that's a fascinating note to leave it on we've reported as well major market that we're seeing a big uptick in demand for virtual data rooms video communication etc so it'd be fascinating to see how that plays out on M&A processes not just now but once the COVID-19 crisis and the self isolation subsides it'll be fascinating to see the, the lasting imprint of that well thanks so much guys for coming on the show today it was a pleasure talking to you both and i wish you the best of luck for the year ahead and above all to stay healthy and stay safe for this time. Thanks for listening to Tipping Point, the show where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most on the world of M&A. Please subscribe and share, rate and like, and follow us on social media to get updates for the next episode.